This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. The movie Police State is now in streaming, and uh, it's streaming on three separate platforms. One is the video platform called Rumble. And the cool thing about getting it on Rumble is that it's very easy. If you have a smart TV, very easy to use the Rumble app to play the movie on your big screen TV, which is not the same as the theatrical experience, but is still pretty good. Uh, probably better, of course, than watching on a computer or on a phone. The film also is available on Salem Now. That's the Salem uh, website, SalemNow.com, and also on Epic TV, Epic TV. Now, uh, if you go to the website, policestatefilm.net, it links to these places and also links to DVDs. So we're selling DVDs through um, through Salem Now. We're also selling DV- DVDs directly through Shopify, and those links are, are on the website. Today is Halloween, and uh, we aren't going to be around. In fact, Debbie was like, this is going to be a little bit awkward because our neighborhood is just swarming with Halloweeners. And normally we get a giant, uh, giant supply of candy. And I'm sort of the candy man. I man the door. But um, we are going to be on our way to Florida. We have a, um, we have our um, our red carpet uh, premiere for Police State. So in any event, we're not going to be celebrating Halloween. But uh, Halloween is the sort of remarkable event. I, I knew nothing about it, by the way, in India. I'd heard of it, but didn't know what it was really like. And it's all about fear, but the fear is is artificial, isn't it? It's make-believe. I've seen probably some of, not most of, and, and certainly not all the sequels, because a lot of these Halloween movies are part one, part two, part three, and who knows when they stop. But I've seen uh, the original Halloween. I've seen, of course, the the Freddy Krueger movies. Of course, some of the... Um, some of the other Halloween movies and some other horror movies that kind of seem to uh, come springing back to life during Halloween, Amityville horror and others. And um, and all of this is a fear experienced vicariously. It's like, wow, what it, would it be like if I lived in a haunted house? Or what would it be like if there was a monster coming to get me? And usually the premise is extremely preposterous. But you go with it because for an hour or so, you can you can kind of put yourself in a state in which you're like, that could happen, maybe, or at least I can I can I can sort of uh, pretend that it did. <clears throat> now, police state uh, is a little different. Uh, it doesn't uh, resort to exaggerated horror. In fact, the film is is understated. It allows the individual accounts of people to be revealed, in some cases using actual footage, in some cases using recreations. And I think the horrifying thing is that these are things happening to everyday Americans. They're not just happening to Trump. They're not just happening even to January 6th defendants. Those people are in the movie. Trump is in the movie. There's a section called Primary Target. Uh, There's a pretty good section on January 6th. And the reason I put it in is I wanted... I think we have a new way of looking at January 6th, different than than what's out there uh, so far. And I think you'll come away seeing it in, in a new light. But beyond that, I wanted to have people going about their business, uh, participating in civic life, and then suddenly, bam, they come face to face with the police state. And uh, 
And this is a harrowing experience. Why? Because they're not prepared for it. I mean, we as a country aren't prepared for it. We haven't had anything like it. Now, arguably, there's been a police state in America in a very limited way uh, involving particular groups. Blacks, I think it's fair to say, lived under a police state under slavery. I mean, they were literally slave patrols that would go around looking for blacks who had sort of taken off from the plantation to capture them and return them to, to servitude. Even in the postbellum era, blacks lived under a certain kind of police state in the democratic-controlled South. Um, sometimes in wartime, there are police state measures that have been taken even in this country, World War I, even more so as far as I'm aware than World War II. Uh, but that's in wartime. I think never before in our history are we seeing a police state consolidate itself right here under conditions of peacetime. Now, it didn't come at us, and the movie lays out the story beautifully all at once. Um, the pretext, in fact, varies. So some of our liberties uh, with regard to surveillance and privacy disappear in the aftermath of 9-11. Other freedoms, like the right to go to church, freedom of assembly, are curtailed under covid other uh, freedoms, freedom of speech, the, the censorship becomes accelerated, the scope of it becomes widened after January 6th. So the occasion, the pretext might vary, but the movement is all in the same direction. It's And all of it has happened, well, slowly and now rapidly. So slowly over the past 15 years since the aftermath of 9-11, it picked up under Obama, but look at the way it's accelerated under Biden. Uh, even we, in, in just the project of making the film, have experienced in, in, in ways I'm going to outline um, uh, subsequently tomorrow or the next day, um, ways that even we are feeling police state scrutiny, police state interference, police state attempts to thwart this film. Well, you don't be thwarted. Make sure you see it. Make sure you share it. The website policestatefilm.net, policestatefilm.net. Net. Guys, I'm really happy to welcome to the podcast Steve Friend. Steve is actually featured um, in Police State. He's a senior fellow at the Center for Renewing America. He's an FBI whistleblower, but uh, now a writer, an author. He also served as in, in law enforcement. His book is called True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. He became a whistleblower in 2022. You can follow him on X. It's at Real Steve Friend. Uh, Steve, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Um, we were just talking a moment ago that you uh, were able to see the film uh, in its final form. And did you see it in the theater? How did you see it? Uh, I had a link sent over to me because uh, I'm trying to promote it with as many uh, journalist friends as I've been able to accumulate over the last year since uh, becoming a public outspoken uh, whistleblower. I remember that when you uh, when we did the interview with you um, and it was in, in a kind of a roundtable format, you had you had sort of lost your voice. And so you speak uh, a little differently, a little more hoarse in the film. And we had talked about whether we should re-record your comments, but I think it came out great. Were you happy with the way that you looked and sounded in the movie? Yes, yeah, there was definitely that distraction. I did my best RFK Jr. impression, it sounded like, but uh, they were able to bring it up. And I, I think that the message was more important, uh, the substance over the uh, the sizzle. Steve, uh, let's hear your story. Um, talk about where you grew up, how you decided to go into law enforcement, 
and um, then we'll then we'll talk about your more recent experience. Well, I'm from Savannah, Georgia, and uh, actually planned on a career, white collar career in accounting. But after a, a year of that, uh, that was not for me, and wanted to do something in public service. Military was off the table. Uh, I have some medical conditions that uh, preclude me from joining the service, but police work seemed like something I could deploy to every day and then serve my community and come home at night. And I became a police officer in Savannah for a number of years and then eventually applied to the FBI because that was the NFL of law enforcement and joined the ranks in, in 2014. And because of my law enforcement background, was sent to Iowa to work on Indian reservations in Northeast Nebraska for my first seven years. And, and that was really a great experience. I got to open about 200 cases and arrest 150 violent criminals. Eventually culminated with me transferring to where I currently live in Daytona Beach, Florida. And I took that transfer in 2021 in the summer, and I was expecting to work on child pornography and human trafficking. But after a few months, my office determined that those were not a priority and they were not going to be handled in our office going forward. And I was essentially voluntold to work on the January 6th cases. So now we're talking nine, 10 months after the actual event. I hadn't had any exposure to them. But from my experience in the FBI, it was immediately apparent to me that the FBI is juking its stats on domestic terrorism and using some very aggressive means to arrest the subjects. In our office, we were going to send a SWAT team to arrest an individual who had pledged to be cooperative. And, and those just didn't sit right with me, with my oath of office, with the training I received. So I came forward to my executive management in my office. And uh, they facilitated my removal from duty within 30 days. It seems like with regard to January 6th, you noticed that one of the things that they were doing is they were decentralizing these January 6th cases to make it look like they were that there was an upsurge of domestic terrorism all over the country. Uh, can you describe that process? Yes, that's precisely what uh, I came forward with. So January 6th happens. It's one incident, one location, Washington, D.C. But the decision was made to open a separate case for every single subject. And then instead of having them exist in Washington, D.C., wherever the person lived. So if you traveled from Florida to Washington, now it appears that there is a domestic terrorist investigation of a, an actual cell in Florida. So when a politician stands at the bully pulpit and says, look at the map, there's a problem with domestic terrorism in America. Almost all of those numbers are derived from this January 6th case where individuals were mostly committing some sort of trespass at worst. There were some very violent examples, but they were few and far between. And the other thing you're saying is that you were initially tasked to work on child pornography, those kinds of cases, and you noticed a shift of priorities, almost like the FBI was saying, this is what we care about now. This is what we think is a bigger problem we're not all that concerned about the stuff you've been working on so far. There was a specific statement made from high level uh, in my office that that was going to be a local issue. When I say the child pornography investigations I was doing were no longer going to be resourced, local matter going forward, I needed to focus on domestic terrorism because that is the new priority within the FBI bureau-wide. So I was voluntold and sort of shifted over. And even though there was not really a whole lot of work to do because... What is not being told is that these January 6th cases are being worked from Washington, D.C., and the field is just following orders and opening cases for those guys in Washington to populate with documents. And, and as an experienced guy who's gone to court, I knew that that was a problem for even a righteous case. 
I would go in there as the case agent and the defense attorney, if they were worth anything, would ask, Agent Friend, did you do anything on your case? And I would have to answer honestly that no, I hadn't. And I, I felt that that would actually jeopardize a righteous prosecution. We'll be right back with Steve Friend, Senior Fellow at the Center for Renewing America. Uh, the book, True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. I'm back with uh, Steve Friend, uh, FBI whistleblower, one of the stars of Police State and author of True Blue. Steve, you're saying something interesting, which is that in the January 6 cases, the uh, quarterbacking of these cases uh, was entirely from Washington, D.C., from the central office. And so although you've got these regional offices that are opening files and opening cases, they're not, in fact, driving the investigation. Uh, is, is that a departure from the norm? Normally, is it the case that if you open an FBI case in Denver, it's the Denver office that does the investigations, not necessarily D.C. D.C. might help coordinate with Denver, but it's a Denver investigation. Was there a, a, a different approach taken in January 6th? And why do you think that is? You've nailed it. That's actually specifically in the FBI's guidebook, the Domestic Intelli Investigations Operations Guide. And it specifies when an incident happens in a location, typically you open it up in that office and you investigate it. And if you need to do some sort of investigation elsewhere, you would do what's called cut a lead and ask for help because it would make sense for me to fly from Florida to California to conduct an interview. An agent could do that for me. But the decision was made very early in the process to open up these cases separately for each person. And then wherever they lived, that office on paper would have responsibility. But Washington, D.C., there was a task force. They would essentially do a behind the scenes investigation and then give directives to the field. So if I open the case up in Florida, Washington would tell me how to run my own case. And that specifically is the departure from the rules. I should be able to call the shots on my own case and then proceed as I see fit. I'm a trained investigator. And the reason for that, when I asked was they said from the headquarters very early on after January 6th, that this was to get buy-in. Now that could mean one of two things. One, you have a macabre view of your workforce and you don't think that they're going to do a good job unless their name is on it. Or two, this is going to allow the FBI to hit all of its quotas. And I said quotas because one does exist in the FBI for domestic terrorism, where the appetite for domestic terrorism from executives, from politicians, vastly outstrips supply in this country. So the FBI is always working from behind the curve, trying to generate cases. I mean, see, this is a, uh, a startling point, and you, you make it uh, very vividly in the movie that the demand for domestic terrorism on the part of the government and elites exceeds the supply. It's almost like they want more than they got. And so as a result, they've got to, they've got to concoct some. They've got to produce more supply to meet the demand, so to speak. And they do this in, in all kinds, uh, in all kinds of ways. How do they, how do they gin up these numbers? How do you make the numbers go up? Is it that you just find more defendants, people who, for example, did virtually nothing in January 6th and you rope them in and start counting them as potential terrorists, even though it could be, you know, some kid who was in there for, for 30 minutes or a grandmother who walked in there, looked around and walked back out and she too falls into the category because, hey, she was inside the Capitol, wasn't she? Is that how they kind of kick the numbers up? 
Yes, it's a human nature. Work smarter and not harder. If I have a separate from January 6th, let's say I have a domestic terrorist cell of four potential terrorists. Why open up one case with four bad guys when I can open up four cases with one bad guy and just duplicate my work? It's juking the stats here. And the, the FBI's own numbers belie what's actually going on. The FBI's last year's goal was to disrupt 600 terrorist operations. They only achieved 397. So if that's accurate, you would have to believe that every day of the year and twice on Sunday, the FBI stopped a domestic terrorist attack from occurring. I don't think you have to be uh, too much of a critical thinker to look out your window and know that that is just plainly not accurate. So you're, you're describing something here that is very remarkable and perhaps goes all the way back to the aftermath of 9-11, which is that maybe right after 9-11, the FBI and also the other police agencies of government, there was the newly formed DHS, maybe expected that there would be a lot more terrorism and that they would need to be thwarting it left and right. Uh, maybe it was that the U.S. military bombings of the Taliban and, and U.S. actions abroad disabled some of those groups like Al-Qaeda, at least in their ability to do harm here. And then the FBI goes, well, we're getting this giant river of cash to do to fight terrorism we're not seeing a whole lot of terrorism do you think that that's maybe when all of this got started and now it's being just redeployed with a different target i think that that's when things got wrapped up into hyperdrive i think 9-11 is really the catalyst because the military did a great job through counterinsurgency of combating those foreign actors and the FBI really, as the national security arm, uh, didn't have a whole lot to do. They were the sentry on the wall. And that's when mission creep happens. That's when the FBI started looking at homegrown violent extremists. And those were first-generation Americans who might have sympathy for uh, an al-Shabaab or an al-Qaeda. And then when they ran out of them, they adapted and evolved into domestic violent extremism. And most recently now we're seeing the agave, the anti-government, anti-authority violent extremist. And you have to look to what President Biden said a year ago at Independence Hall when he said that MAGA Republicans were anti-government and they were white supremacists. And, and interestingly, those are the two top priorities for the FBI's counterterrorism division. We'll be right back with Steve Friend, FBI whistleblower. You follow my next at Real Steve Friend, the book True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. I'm back with FBI Whistleblower Steve Friend. He's featured in the movie Police State. Uh, Steve, you know, one of the things I, I learned from you, from Kyle Serafin and from the movie was the way in which a police state operation can get good guys to do bad things because that's a bit of a mystery i think for people they they'll often think well you know is the fbi really made up from top to bottom of of just villains who are some sort of you know goons just who just enjoy sadistic violence that seems unlikely it would seem that you've got people there who are you know patriotic and normal guys who have a wife and a family and, and yet those very mundane human motives uh, of how do I succeed at work? How do I get ahead? Uh, how do I protect, you know, and provide for my family can be mobilized by some bad people to get good people to do bad things. Can we, let's talk about how that happens. How does a guy 
you know, how, how do you get an FBI guy to sort of smash into somebody's apartment? Let's say grab some grandmother by the hair, pull her to the ground and twist her arms behind her back, pull her in the street where her neighbors come out and they're horrified. I mean, this seems like a very brutal thing to do. And yet you've got seemingly good guys doing it. How do you make them do it? I think there's a couple elements to that. I, I think that uh, basically when you have this perverse incentive structure where people are trying to gin up cases, they look at Americans as opportunities. I sort of compare it to the small town police department that really all they do is write speeding tickets. They start looking at the citizens of their town as the enemy, and they look at them at, as opportunities to write those tickets, and they're not really doing the job of protecting and serving, and they're not looking for you know burglaries or any sort of property crimes. And that's sort of trickled into the FBI's mindset now, whether because they're an intelligence agency rather than law enforcement, they're looking at the American citizen as the enemy. And then you have the problem of, of just basic uh, people are compromised. You have this, this high salary and, and people have this great job with a lot of accolades attached to it, a lot of steam. And uh, and then they start outliving uh, what their means are and then they're vulnerable and they, they threw that at you whenever you raise the, the alarm flag. And I, that's, that's what my experience was. I mean, within a minute of me coming forward, my frontline supervisor and then up the chain of command all had the similar interaction with me. And they said, you're jeopardizing your career. Are you sure you want to do this? Because being an FBI agent is a, is a pretty plum gig. There's an opportunity there to be very underworked and overpaid. Uh, and and it's, it's just very disappointing because I took my oath of office seriously. And I don't think too many others did. They sort of view it as this iPhone user agreement and they're checking yes. And, and finally, I'll say that there's a question of what constitutes success. To me, following the process is success. I don't care about the win or the loss at trial. That's up to a jury of that individual's peers. I want to follow the process by the book. I'm a, I'm a, not a system disruptor. I'm a system idealist. I follow the law. I follow the procedures. I follow the constitution. And the results don't matter to me. And you're saying that what's happened in the FBI is there's now a view that if I can sort of get this guy, that will be a notch in my belt because the FBI will now see me as very effective in achieving its objectives. And this whole notion that the FBI has its own objectives, I mean, isn't it true that at one point, I think you say this in the film, they told you, hey, Steve, you know what? You have a duty to the FBI, not to the U.S. Constitution. I mean, what a telling statement. Yes, that's true. Uh, my assistant special agent in charge said that to me when I had a private meeting with him and another ASAC. Uh, I say, cited my oath of office and, and my training where I went to the Holocaust Memorial and I learned that genocide only occurs when you just follow orders and it's incumbent on you to throw the flag if you perceive that the FBI is off the rails. And they said, yeah, you have an oath of office, but you have a duty to the FBI and you have to do what we tell you to do. And this is not a question of we're in the military in combat and you're ordering me to take a hill and, and take on and taking on gunfire. This is a question of my oath of office, which should supersede anything that I perceive to be anti-constitutional. So what you're saying is that if if an FBI guy is given a task that seems distasteful, kind of like the one I described, he can rationalize it to himself by saying, hey, listen, I'm merely making an arrest. I don't know what this woman has done. We'll let the courts figure that out. 
Uh, we like to do these early dawn raids. We like to surprise people. Uh, we don't want them to know we're coming. Otherwise, they could sort of be ready for us in some way. And maybe it's more dangerous that way. If I do this, I'll be seen as a good guy in the FBI. I'm one of the one of the boys. I'm 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 on the team. I'm not a troublemaker. And uh, and then maybe one day I'll be able to retire comfortably with a nice pension. So these human motives, which people have all across the society in corporate America and everywhere else, can be mobilized to get ordinary people to. Uh, do some pretty brutal and sadistic things. Can can aren't they? Can't they? Absolutely. The banality of evil. The police battalion one hundred and one is real. It does exist in the FBI. That proposition was given to me. They said, Steve, you're just going to be driving him to court. That's your only contribution to this warrant. And I said, look, that's no different than putting somebody on a train to Auschwitz. In my mind, if I know that he is going to face no due process and his rights are going to be violated. He's going to face cruel and unusual punishment. My oath of office supersedes this order and directive that you're giving me. We'll be right back with Steve Friend, FBI whistleblower. Follow him on X at Real Steve Friend. I'm back with Steve Friend, senior fellow at the Center for Renewing America. FBI whistleblower, the book True Blue, my journey from beat cop to suspended FBI whistleblower. Steve, um, you know, you took a big step and a brave step, and 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 you weren't the only one. Kyle Serafin, there are others. You have sort of walked away from the FBI, and that means walking away from some a good, reliable salary, uh, benefits, the promises of greater benefits down the road. Uh, it must have been a scary step to take in a sense. Uh, what made you make that final decision that said, you know what, I can't do it. I, I got to get out of here, uh, even if my road ahead is completely uncertain at this point. You know, I, I've always subscribed to the belief that doing the right thing isn't always easy, but it's very simple. I have two small children uh, and setting an example to them and then laying my head down at night knowing that I'm doing the right thing is more important to me than carrying around a government issued credentials and gun and badge. Uh, and, and my responsibility uh, to my community that I felt as an FBI agent continues to this day. I can I can serve my my local community. I can serve my state. I can serve my country. And I don't need any sort of affirmation uh, with the, the FBI logo or monogram behind me to do that. Do you miss the kind of daily work of being a cop or an FBI agent? I mean, in a sense, you're, you've moved into a world where you're a writer, a speaker, an author, you're on podcasts. It's a different kind of life. Is it one that you've adjusted to or do you go, whoa, I'm a little bit a fish out of water here. I, I, I was, I was much more myself when I was an FBI agent. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. That's this definitely been a very unusual uh, now 14 months for myself. I never envisioned myself in this sphere. You only go around once. I'm really grateful I got to meet uh, some really smart and and uh, and interesting people like yourself, uh, like Dan Bongino. Uh, these people who had my back uh, when I was up against it, and that was my hope that stepping away from the FBI and my my fellow agents might might come to my rescue in sort of this Captain America endgame finale type of situation. And and it didn't come to pass. And and I do have a little bit uh it hurts my heart because I really enjoyed being an FBI agent. I had a uh, pretty exemplary career. I got to to do a lot of really great things and I felt like I was in the right place. Uh but that place didn't 
uh, didn't want me anymore. And, and, and that means that you have to adjust and you have to serve in another way. And I'm really lucky because so many other whistleblowers just drift away into the dustbin of history. Uh, whereas I've been able to connect with uh, my fellow whistleblowers and we've got this nice little unit. We call ourselves the suspendables and, and other people in media have helped to amplify our message. And we're really uh, optimistic about that. We're going to be able to bring some actual reform to this agency, which is clearly in, in duress. Let's talk about how that would occur. If let's just say that the Republicans win the White House next year, they're like, let's fix this. Um, I'm assuming that we do need something like an FBI. There are lots of cases and many of them mundane cases that don't have any political tinge to them, solving murders, things like that. How does one root out the corruption in the FBI if it's not just one or two guys at the top, but it somehow now also filters and you've got strategically placed bad guys in, in many parts of the organization? How do you how do you get them out? I think you have problems top to bottom because the people that are in there right now know what are, is going on and, and they are compromised or they're complicit with it. So I think I, I've done away in my lexicon with saying the good men and women of the FBI. I don't think that's an appropriate statement at this point. But uh, to your question, I think that if Congress and if a new president comes in, if they are unwilling to take the step, which I believe is necessary, and that is eliminating the FBI, one sort of middle ground that you could do is eliminate the armed special agent within the FBI, make it an unarmed investigative agency as it originally was as a Bureau of Investigations, and then force it to partner with the local sheriff's offices, local police departments, and then you would cross-deputize their personnel give them federal arrest of powers so they would be the the armed component and that would allow a sheriff to be a bulwark against an out of control politicized fbi and also you would then do the bidding of that local sheriff who is elected to bring the crime down so he could say i don't care about your domestic terrorism quota that you're ginning up stats on you're not going to investigate dinesh d'souza for domestic terrorism i have a problem with fentanyl or with illegal immigrants in my community, and my constituents elected me to address those problems. So we're going to direct our, the, our resources and the FBI's know-how, resources, technology at bringing those numbers down, which would serve the community all, uh, on the whole better. Well, what a great idea. Um, I mean, it also resolves the idea that as conservatives, we can very much be back the blue and at the same time against the police state. It's almost like there are some people who are so obtuse, they're like, how can we be back the blue and at the same time you've made this movie Police State, Dinesh? Well, my point is that police states are inherently lawless. They they flagrantly violate their mission and, they, and, and the law. And so it is completely consistent to support local law enforcement and law enforcement when it's doing its job and at the same time oppose law, uh, police agencies of the government when they are not doing their job. Uh, guys, the book, you need to check it out. It's by Steve Friend. It's called True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. Steve, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Alexander Solzhenitsyn is talking about the two codes that exist under Soviet law. One is the criminal code and the other is the code of criminal procedure, which is called the UPK. The other is called the UK. Now, Solzhenitsyn says, even though you do have this body of law and it's supposed to come to the aid of defendants and protect the rights of defendants, he goes, it's 
it doesn't really work like that. Listen to Solzhenitsyn. The grass has grown thick over the grave of my youth. What a beautiful line. The, the grass has grown thick over the grave of my youth. I served out my term and even eternal exile as well. So he serves his eight years in prison. He's then exiled out of the Soviet Union. And, and yet he goes, and nowhere, not in the cultural education sections of the camps, not in the district libraries, nor even in medium-sized cities, have I seen with my own eyes, held in my own hands, been able to buy, obtain, or even ask for the code of Soviet law. So here he is. When he was in prison, he didn't have access to this code. He gets out. He can go to a library. No luck. Go to a bookstore. No luck. There is no place to find the code. It sort of exists, but yet it doesn't exist. And of the hundreds of prisoners I knew who had gone through interrogation and trial, and more than once too, who had served sentences in camp and exile, none had ever seen the code or held it in his hand. So you have rights, but you may as well not. It was only when both codes were 35 years old and on the point of being replaced by new ones that I saw them. So he gets the code and he can look at it and I guess he can use it for writing the Gulag Archipelago, but it becomes a sort of a retroactive document in the sense, retroactive in the sense that it does him no good. He's already served a sentence, but now he has the code. He wishes he had it before, but he never did. And then he looks at the code and he goes, yeah, there are some good things in here. And he says, for example, Article 136, uh, Article 111, I'm sorry, the interrogator is obliged to establish clearly all the relevant facts, both those tending toward acquittal and any which may lessen the accused measure of guilt. And yet he goes, even though that's in the code, no interrogator that he knows of, either interrogating him or anyone else, um, ever did this. He says, um, he says that, um, if a guy is being interrogated and he says, hey, listen, I'm a Communist Party member. I took part in the dispossession of the Kulaks. I saved the state 10 million rubles in lowered production costs. I was wounded twice in the war. I have three orders and decorations. He goes, the interrogator goes, you're not being tried for any of that. So whatever good you may have done has nothing to do with this case. So what happened to the idea that you should look at all the relevant facts, including those that may lessen your culpability or mitigate your guilt. Turns out they don't do that. <coughs> Article 139. The accused has the right to set forth his testimony in his own hand and to demand the right to make corrections in the deposition written by the interrogator. And then Solzhenitsyn says, almost with rueful humor, oh, if only we had known that. So... If only the defendants had been taught some prison science, if only interrogation had been run through first in rehearsal and only afterward for real. <laughs> Solzhenitsyn is basically saying, we are just helpless lambs in this situation. We don't have the same cunning. We don't have the same resources. We are not allowed to lie like the interrogators are. And then Solzhenitsyn talks about the loneliness of the accused. He goes, that's the key. They keep you isolated. It's a, it's kind of a shock period, as he calls it, from interrogation uh, to conviction. You're not supposed to encounter others like yourself. 
They don't want you to get any sympathy, any advice, any support. They don't want people who have been through what you have to advise you. Hey, listen, say this, don't say that. They don't want any of that. He says it was the habit of the organs of the state to destroy you and those you love, as well as the authority to pardon, which the organs didn't even have. So they give you the idea, hey, listen, if you cooperate, we'll send you to a less severe camp. And you go, oh, wow, that's going to help me. But they don't have the authority to do that. They're just saying that. Or listen, if you really tell us the truth, it's going to go well for you. You could walk right out of here today. That's never going to happen. They don't even have the authority to release you, but they let on that they do. And so as a result, you are more obliging. Some defendants become so depressed, this is under conditions of isolation, that they even ask not to have the depositions read to them. They could not stand hearing them. Um, they asked merely to be allowed to sign them, just to sign and get it over with. So think of how much you are broken down in which they're saying all these fantastical things. Remember from last time, this guy was colluding with the Japanese generals who are passing espionage documents to him. None of it's even true. And yet you're so worn down, you're so broken in terms of your psychological resistance and your physical resistance that you're like, you know what, don't even read it to me. What difference does it possibly make? Let me just sign, get it over with. Essentially, my fate is sealed. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com.